welcome to a new weekly podcast series called USERF Spotlight, hosted by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent federal advisory body. During each episode, Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, features a special guest to dive deeper on various topics and breaking developments that impact the universal right to freedom of religion or belief around the globe. Welcome to You Serve Spotlight. I'm Dwight Bashir. Today we're going to discuss some ongoing religious freedom issues in Egypt with a particular emphasis on the plight of the Quranist Muslim minority in the country. Egypt's been a key strategic U.S. partner in the Middle East and North Africa since the late 1970s, as well as a recipient of a substantial amount of annual military and humanitarian aid. It's also home to an enormous population of over 100 million people, and that includes a majority Sunni Muslim population and a significant Coptic Orthodox Christian community. Egypt's population also includes a variety of smaller non-Muslim religious minorities, such as Baha'is and Jehovah's Witnesses and non-theists, as well as other Muslim minorities, such as Shia Muslims and the Quranist community, which we're focusing on today. While conditions for the Coptic population certainly attracts the most attention from religious freedom advocates, these smaller religious communities have long faced marginalization and repression from religious and governmental authorities. We at USERF have often acknowledged in recent years the ways in which Egypt has shown some marked signs of improvement, particularly in terms of the Egyptian government's willingness to more openly acknowledge and discuss some of the country's religious freedom challenges. However, that modest progress hasn't necessarily trickled down to the smaller marginalized communities. With that in mind, I'd like to welcome to our spotlight conversation today, Sharif Mansour, who is currently the Middle East and North Africa Program Coordinator for the Committee to Protect Journalists. And apart from his work for advocating human rights in Egypt and the wider Middle East, Sharif is also a member of the Quranist Muslim community himself, Uh, whose adherents continue to face serious repression in Egypt. His father, Ahmed Subi Mansour, established Egypt's Quranist movement, but later fled to the United States for his safety. And Sharif's cousin, Reda Abdul Rahman, has been held under pre-trial detention in Egypt since August 2020 for blogging about Quranist teachings. Sharif, welcome to You Serve Spotlight. Thank you, Dwight, for having me. Right, let's start with the community in which your family has played a prominent role and has faced persecution and exile as a result. Most of our listeners are likely familiar with Egypt's Coptic Christian community, which we've discussed on this podcast just a few months ago, but maybe less familiar with the Quranist movement. What can you tell us about the movement? What, what are its beliefs? How many people belong to it in Egypt? And, and why has it become a target of Egyptian authorities over the years? Absolutely. So the movement is mainly a school of thought in Quran, which basically says that you don't need a middleman. You don't need a religious authority. You don't need the state to get you to heaven. You are your own responsibility. The role of the state is to guarantee religious freedom and freedom of speech for everyone. And that the main reason the the people who uh, believe in these principles fall uh, in a contradiction with religious authorities, including Al-Azhar, and with dictatorships, where you're not allowed to 
practice anything different or to preach anything different than the official line. Uh, my father claims a total of 10,000 people, not just in Egypt, across the world, based on estimates of people who join our website, Ahlul Quran, the voice of the International Quranic Center, where my father found in North Virginia, advocating religious freedom and uh, even uh, helping women, Muslim women in the United States and around the world, who wants to marry non-Muslims. According to the Sunni interpretations, uh, you're not allowed as a woman to marry outside the faith. But he uses uh, not just his belief system in practical in helping bring people together. And uh, my father uh, have fought for more than three decades against censorship within Al-Azhar, the official religious institution in Egypt. And he used to tell us a long time ago that, uh, you know, a state shouldn't have a religion. Uh, Al-Azhar shouldn't exist. And these uh, were kind of the basis of a secular foundation of Islam that respects uh, not just uh, religious minorities and freedom of speech, women rights and other uh, forms of uh, uh, you know modern understanding that I think make it a threat to a lot of people in the Middle East. You mentioned your father. I had the privilege of uh, working with him when he served as a uh, USERF fellow back in 2009 and 2010 when he was writing about uh, some of the reform within Islam and, and uh, based on his studies and interpretation. Uh, can you share a little bit more about his story? You, you touched on it, but why did he flee Egypt? Was he forced to uh, in the first place? And how has he continued his work uh, for the movement uh, globally since he's been in the United States? So my father, uh, I mentioned that uh, he was in Al-Azhar. He was an assistant professor uh, and he basically uh, was uh, forced out of Al-Azhar, he was fired, because he suggested uh, in his books that he presented to be a professor. Uh, ideas like, for example, the right of women to be heads of uh, the Muslim state. Uh, the fact that you know, you're not automatically going to be allowed into heaven by being a Muslim, and that Jews, uh, Christians, and others uh, have the same right to go to heaven as Muslims. Things that was controversial in 1985. And these things that uh, basically were the basis of Al-Azhar even going to state security under Mubarak at the time to arrest him the first time in 1987 and to keep uh, a legal case of insulting religion by denying, quote-unquote, known established facts and denying hadith and other interpretations of uh, the dominant Sunni tradition. Uh, even though the, the Egyptian government claims in its constitution that it practices freedom of speech, and practices freedom of religion. In reality, this will always been under the control of the religious institution, Al-Azhar, and uh, enforced by the state security apparatus. 
Eventually, he was uh, threatened with arrest in the year 2001 after being detained several times and after several of our family members, uh, including myself in 1997, had been detained, questioned, and intimidated. And over uh, the course of uh, this millennia, we all have been able to arrive to the United States, 27 of us after 15 uh, of us were detained, and seek asylum and become citizens of the United States. Well, it's quite a story. And I can tell you, you know, as traveling to Egypt for the past 20 years or so, you know, meeting some of the community still in Egypt in the early 2000s, they were still under pressure, you know, far after uh, you and your family had been able to, to leave and seek asylum. Um, you know, and unfortunately, this long-standing antagonism towards uh, members of the Quranist uh, community uh, most recently targeted your cousin, uh, Reda Abdul Rahman, who has uh, been in pretrial detention for nearly a year on terrorism-related charges and insulting uh, religion. What can you tell us about his arrest, uh, his prison conditions over the past uh, year, and what's the latest status on his case? Sure. So this is actually the third arrest that Rida faces because of his affiliation to us and his writing, including about uh, our belief system. He is also, like me and my father, who was... Uh, uh, studied and trained in Al-Azhar, and he teaches in Al-Azhar, uh, but he was punished more than once because he was active on Ahl quran website through the International Quranic Center, and he had his own blog expressing his ideas, and some that contradicted, you know, uh, a lot of Al-Azhar official uh, uh, statements, including you know, criticizing uh, the way cops have been treated and other enlightened ideas. Uh, his first time was arrested right after all of us, uh, my the close relative, my parents and my brothers, were able to seek asylum in the United States in 2007. He was arrested along with my family uh, members in 2008. And then later in 2015, uh, the state security ordered him uh, to uh, stop writing on his blog, which he did, and arrested him for a few days. And when he was released, uh, he knew that this may not be the last time. And he told us about a lot more about what happened to him in custody, including being electrocuted, including beaten and insulted. And at the last time, he was... Uh, basically forced disappeared for 45 days. We didn't know where he is. We had no access to him. And later we found out that he was starved in custody. And later they started a case of terrorism against him, me, my father, the same guy that I told you was fighting against terrorism for more than three decades. And uh, basically the government uh, keeping without any right of trial, without even any uh, uh, hearings or evidence uh, now for almost a year. We're hoping that uh, he would be released and the charges will be dropped because it's ridiculous. Uh, my father had a track record. When he came to the US in 2001, was, he was invited by UN officials after 9-11 and they 
appointed him an ambassador of peace. And you mentioned he was part of the commission, but he was also a member of Harvard uh, Law School Human Rights Program, the National Endowment for Democracy. So his record and his uh, preaching uh, had their own record to make all those accusations uh, ridiculous. So the, it sounds to me as if, uh, you know, this is obviously a case, uh, you know, we're watching because he was blogging, as you said, about some of the belief system of the Quranist movement. But there's a, there's been wider, uh, you know, criticism, obviously, in recent years of Egyptian uh, uh, human rights record. You know, one of the challenges that we face since we focus on the narrow uh, human right of religious freedom uh, you know, it's important that we uh, acknowledge when there is progress, when there's positive developments. And we did see, have seen some of that since uh, Sisi came in and, the, and his years went by. But, you know, you can't live in a vacuum when you see larger human rights uh, being impacted. And you wrote in, uh, in Newsweek magazine earlier this year in which you claim that Egyptian authorities have recently been threatening the families of, uh, in Egypt of dissidents who live abroad, including yourself. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, some of those concerns uh, on what this uh, seemingly new development uh, looks like? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Reda had been taken a hostage in many ways to try to pressure our family here. Uh, my father in his preachings and in his website, Allah al-Quran, which was mysteriously hacked when we announced on the website the arrest of Rida and the charges against us. And me, through my work, uh, either formerly with Freedom House, uh, uh, pro-democracy and human rights group in Washington, or currently with the Committee to Protect Journalists Advocating Press Freedom and defending and criticizing the government for becoming consistently one of the worst jailers of journalists by uh, at our count in December, jailing 27 journalists um, like Saudi Arabia and worse. And in many ways, the challenge on both religious freedom and uh, freedom of the press are connected because they're all about having uh, uh, your conscience and that's what, what I think Sisi and his government have failed to do. They only pay lip service to the issues of press freedom and religious freedom. But in practice, they have went and used uh, even similar tactics of moral police to police uh, speech online, police women, and police religious minorities, not just Quranists. And uh, the exiled community, including people like us who continue to speak up uh, after they managed to silence almost everyone, is just one of the last target of this policy and abuse of uh, pretrial detention that includes thousands of people uh, inside the country. So let me ask you then, obviously, uh, you know, there's been, uh, you know, broader criticism uh, and it seems like the, the the new Biden administration coming in has said it wants to have human rights at the center of its foreign policy. Obviously, Egypt's been a uh, recipient of significant amount of aid to the tune of one and a half billion dollars for many years, about one point three billion as far as in, in, mainly military assistance. Um, 
and this has always been a debate. Should uh, funds be conditioned or not? There's a debate in Congress again right now. It looks like uh, the administration may be seeking not to condition aid uh, on the basis of human rights uh, reforms or progress. In your estimation, given um, the, 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 the track record, uh, how can uh, and should the United States shape its policy in, in a way to hold Egypt accountable for its uh, you know, religious freedom record, the treatment of some of these minorities, particularly the Koranists, but others who still face? Uh, I mean, we talked briefly about, I mean, I mentioned the Coptic Christians, but there's still many pressing items that they face, uh, not to mention Baha'is and Jehovah's Witnesses who are still banned by presidential decree from 60 some years ago. What would you recommend? You've been in Washington for a while now, and from this perspective, what what should be the approach from U.S. policy vis-a-vis uh, -vis Egypt and and holding them accountable for their uh, human rights and religious freedom record? Well, I'm disappointed with the Biden administration and Secretary Blinken basically also giving lip service to these issues, while in practice. Uh, even feeling to call publicly this hostage practice. Uh, they say Egypt is an ally and a partner. And while Egypt take Americans, uh, their, their family members hostage, like Iran and North Korea. So at least uh, they have to call them out if they want to describe them as friends. And I think not just talking publicly, start thinking about sanction systems the same way we do with Saudi Arabia, Khashoggi bans, Magnitsky sanctions, and aid conditionality is a must. I think, you know, uh, we've been trying this approach with Egypt and uh, what we've seen since the 2011 Arab Spring is the Egyptian government not just using uh, hostage policy, but using bullying approach to try to solve its relationship with Egypt. And my own case and my family's case is just one example of how far they go after American citizens and after human rights advocates abroad. Mohammed Sultan is one of them, who we just recently saw the U.S. top intelligence officer ask for him to be jailed in the United States. These are all showing that the Egyptian government feels that they can get away with this policy. And that's, I think, a stain would be on the uh, Biden administration uh, moving forward. Uh, not just aid conditionality on military aid, uh, on conditions on uh, American-based uh, uh, individuals, on what's happening in Egyptian prisons. Uh, we need to see a lot more releases, hundreds and thousands of innocent people who were denied due process, and we need a change in the policy so that the Egyptian government cannot abuse pre-trial detention and make it a punishment to uh, outside of the law. Well, we'll have to leave it right here. I want to thank uh, Sharif Mansour for joining us today and sharing these latest updates about the Quranist community in Egypt. and. In particular, his cousin Reda Abdul Rahman, who has been held for almost a year now for blogging his uh, beliefs and thoughts. Uh, you can find uh, USERF's findings on Egypt and our latest uh, recommendations for U.S. policy on our website at www.us.org. 
crf.gov. As always, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on USERV Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.